this is Sophie Wilson, and you are listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Patrons of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast get free audiobooks and bonus episodes. Hi, this is Linus Wilson. We have a packed episode of the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast featuring Joy and Jim Carey of the sailing vessel Calarin. They sailed for over 16 years around the world, within 150 miles of crossing their outbound track on their east-about circumnavigation. They were hit by a storm and forced to abandon ship. They were rescued by the U.S. Coast Guard. And I didn't cover this story because I was sailing in Tonga. But when I, before I got back from Tonga, I read that their boat had been recovered. I'm so happy to bring you the full story from Jim and Joy Carey in this episode. The true story of the sailing disaster adrift based on Tammy Olden Ashcraft's book Red Sky in Morning came out for rental uh, so you can get that from wherever you rent videos. I think it's about five dollars to see the movie. I did. I would have saw it first run but as I was sailing in the South Pacific I didn't have that opportunity. I was really disappointed in the movie. Uh, I thought it was a, a real snooze to be honest. Uh, I thought her first book, not the one made for the movie version, but her first edition, which I listened to as audiobook, was a good a good listen or a good read. But I was not at all <laughs> into uh, the Adrift movie, which had a lot of flashbacks and just was a little bit slow for me. So I had like a 48-hour rental, and I needed every 48 hours to get through it. And I started on the, once I bought it, and then I had to take a break. And so there you go. I, I'd say... There's a lot of other sailing movies out there that I I would watch first. You know, I guess I don't feel like I'm really the target market for that movie. It did okay in terms of the box office. I think they made back their money, but it's really marketed as kind of a maudlin love story. And it was just not enough action going on, which is kind of amazing, you know, given the storm that they went through. Stars Shailene Woodley as Tammy Oldham. The other big thing going on in September, and we have a lot of coverage of that on the Slow Boat Sailing YouTube channel, was the Hurricane Florence, which was shaping up to be the the biggest hurricane to hit North America this season. So we have an interview right after the Jim and Joy Carey interview with Sailing Banjo, who used a Mantis anchor, a sponsor of this podcast, to anchor because they were kicked out of their marina. And then they filmed their marina. You can see that on the YouTube channel. And their boat did great at anchor, but their marina was pretty much destroyed. And so they tell us about the conditions in New Bern, North Carolina, where they had over a 10-foot storm surge. And a lot of boats were overturned that were hauled out because the storm surge floated them and they floated off their stands. But also a lot of boats sunk in the marina that did not evacuate as they were ordered to. So I spoke to Shannon and Sean Yale of Sailing Banjo because of the amazing documentation uh, that they did on their Facebook page and their YouTube channel about the storm in New Bern. We'll hear that interview at the end of this podcast. And then the other thing that happened towards the end of the month 
was that two boats were dismasted in the Golden Globe in a 70-knot storm with 15 meters, almost 50-foot waves. One of the boats that was not dismasted, Mark Slats, he was knocked down several times and thrown overboard and only survived because of his harness that kept him from being swept off the boat. The two that were dismasted were recently rescued by a French fishing patrol vessel in coordinated efforts with the Indian and Australian navies. And one of the skippers, Avalash Tommy of India, who's sailing a Suheili replica, replica of the boat that Sir Robin Knox Johnston sailed in the first Golden Globe around the world, that was dismasted. And when it was dismasted, Tommy had a severe back injury that incapacitated him and made it impossible for him to cut away his mast, set up a jury rig, or even put the companionway hatch on his boat so it didn't flood. And so for several days, we were worried uh, that he may be lost at sea there. But thankfully, he was rescued, and as was uh, Gregor McGuckin, the Irish sailor, who also was dis dismasted and they're on their way home as this is being recorded and we have a video up about that disaster on the youtube channel and we plan to have another video following up about the rescue all right here's a word from our title sponsor of this episode i noticed you guys have a lot of cool products one was the underwater light so we have a waterproof light you can recharge it in its case it has just a simple usb cable it's good for uh, 30 feet underwater so it's really nice if you need to go under the under the boat and check your hull um do any inspections or check the prop it's really convenient or even go down look at the anchor a lot of times you don't have good light um, we've been in situations at nighttime when you've had to dive under the boat because the prop's gotten fouled up a thousand lumens so it has really bright light settings on it too so it really lights up the um lights up the area well that was Deneen Taylor of Mantis Anchors. You can get their fine products at great retailers or at mantismarine.com. Deneen Taylor is a rocket scientist at NASA in addition to designing great products for Mantis Anchors. Jim and Joy Carey embarked on an east about around the world voyage in the early 2000s, sailing through the Med, through the Suez Canal, across the Indian Ocean, to Southeast Asia, to New Zealand, to Tahiti, to Hawaii, and they were on their final offshore passage before completing their 16-plus year circumnavigation when they hit a storm like they had never seen before. Here is their story. got an amazing voyage and I want to get into all of it and I want to talk about your boat Calarin for a little bit and then I wanted to talk about what happened more recently and why you're in Fort Bragg now uh, fixing up the boat. What kind of boat is Calarin? It's an Omega 45 cutter rig. It's a, one of the Taiwan boats that were built on the kind of on the Peterson design. Did you buy it new in, in 91? It's It was built in 1980 so 91 we were the third owners, the third owners. But it's a, done a great job for you. I'm sure you've made a, a lot of improvements and uh, it's a much different boat than you bought it too. Yeah, I think almost everything except the engine was totally replaced. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, 
or just definitely maintained, but the boat is, uh, yeah, it's been a fantastic boat. I can't sing the praises enough of yeah. it, really. We love this boat. Why don't we skip ahead and then we'll come back to the the cruise through the Indian Ocean and through the Pacific. But let's go to the Pacific cruise. What was your last port before you made for Bellingham, Washington? We were in, so we left from actually Alawai in Oahu. Right, yeah. And, yeah. and made straight up for Cape Flattery. Okay, so Cape Flattery's in, in Washington. Washington, yes, yeah. right out the Straits of Juan de Fuca. That's that sounds like a really tough trip. It sounds like it'd be not a long trip, and it's also, I guess you have to catch the the westerlies or something? Well, you, have, you have to catch the high, yeah. So you have to wait for the high to form, and we were watching it for, because we were in Hawaii since January. Of course, you can't do it then, and that was fine, because we were enjoying Hawaii very much. But uh, we kind of got a little, like it was time to go. We wanted to get back. Basically spend the summer getting some work done on the boat, getting some work done on our, ourselves. We, we need, both needed medical checkups, and we thought, well, we'll just get back there and get some things done before our next our next phase. And, yeah, so we waited for the high to settle. Been watched for quite a while on May 26th. We had already, already been listening to other boats that had left and gone up to Alaska and other places up there in the northwest, and uh, they were doing well. So we left. We did fine. We did fine until the very last day. I mean, we had, it was sometimes rough, but we had actually, that was okay, you know, it was just, it was disappointing in that there was never any sun, and it was cloudy the whole time and kind of dismal, but we had plenty of wind, so we sailed the, the entire way, and we didn't have any bad issues until that very last day. What kind of conditions were you experiencing right before you had trouble? How did it, how did it progress? And Okay, so on the 16th, you know, Jim was down on the grip files every day, mm-hmm. uh, twice and sometimes more often if he needed to. On the evening of, maybe it was the evening of the 15th, he started to see that the weather we thought we were going to have, which we thought we were going to have actually an easy sail in, and even the winds would be so light that we might have to motor, which was fine because we had tons of fuel left. Instead, he got this grip file and it was 21 to 26 knots from the north. We said, well, shoot. (laughs) We thought that, okay, you know, it's going to be rough, but we can still make it. We only have 150 miles left to go, no problem. And it was fine for a while, and then, but it just kept building and building and building until uh, that night of the 20, of the 16th, it built up to, we had 30 foot waves, 30 foot seas, but we were, we had clocked off and had, uh, you know, we were, had been headed straight for Cape Flattery uh, to go into Nia Bay, but we kept clocking off, you know, to the south and we ended up, all of a sudden we were facing Grays Harbor, and it was the Columbia River, and then we were just headed south, paralleling the coast, with these, and we decided to just follow the seas, go with the seas, and we'll just wait this out until we could get out of it somehow. When you got those weather reports, you got you got the you got the wind grip. Did you also get wave grips too? Yeah, I believe so. And it wasn't there wasn't anything like that. So they they, they were not predicting thirty foot seas or anything like that in in the waves. No. Uh, we had over twenty knots of wind all the way up, almost. Yeah. Um, very. Seldom was it even below 20 knots. So we basically, from the time we left Hawaii, had a you know what you would call kind of a rough sea. It wasn't uh, it wasn't a pleasant journey, but it wasn't dangerous or you know anything like that. But it was you know kind of rough the whole way. So was and, it uh, was it choppy or were the waves big? What what made it rough going up? And sometimes some confused 
see, so you okay. can, you know, you know how that is. The waves from different directions. And so maybe there's like a big swell, and then there's also the wind-driven waves in it, something like that. But that, that wasn't an issue for us. You know, just, I mean, we've done that many, many times before, right. so we just thought we'd get through it. But the build-up was a surprise. And then, of course, you know, at 3.30 in the morning, we just, uh, I mean, Jim was steering with using the wind vane. Uh, he was out on watch when I decided to go down and take a quick, we decided to do one hour watches during this, and um, so I went down just to take a quickie nap, and actually it's a good thing I did, because if I had been up during that rollover, I don't know that I'd be talking to you right now, <laughs> and uh, Jim was uh, up in the cockpit, and he said this thing just came up from behind one of the regular waves and over to the, from a different direction, you know, from the east, and, and it just, he said, it just happened. That's it's just an oddity, I guess you call it, or a rope wave, or whatever you want to call it. I don't, I don't know if there's a sufficient name for something like that, but it just happened. One wave. Once that was over, we were still sailing with just fine with the 30-foot seas at the time uh, going downwind. But, I mean, we had to steer because the wind vane had broken. We were a little bit in shock just trying to deal with uh, what had happened. D did you see the wave or no? I didn't. I was down below asleep. I had actually gone. No, asleep, I mean, did so I did Jim see it though? To the basically, I was probably thrown all the way up to the ceiling, and came back, rolled back down again, and, and then just this this just engulfed with water. It was just an incredible amount of water that came in. What we think happened when we rolled the the dinghy was ripped off. The dinghy's tied down with lines to the handrails. Been that way for. 37 years or whatever it is that we've on the boat, 27 years I guess it was, and we, uh, we think that the rope got under the main hatch and and I don't know how it could have pulled it up, it was dogged down, in fact we checked it, you know, as the wind started to, to you know, uh, increase, uh, the waves started to get yeah. bigger, we checked everything, make sure everything was dogged down, of course all the ports are always dogged down, and um, and it just got under that and lifted that thing up, and I think that's where most of the water came in, that's what we're guessing. So, so it was that dinghy ripping out that opened up the hatch, and then when the wave went over the deck, it all came in there. Yeah, well, I don't think it all came in there. I mean, uh, we had uh, drop boards in, but they weren't, uh, the, the, both uh, hatches, we have two cockpit hatches, because we have an aft cabin, it's a center cockpit. I'm sure some came in through some of the, over the top yeah. of the uh, drop boards, but until that t moment, we were not taking any water aboard. I mean, we weren't pooping, we didn't get pooped by the waves, right. we were you know, plowing into them, nothing, we were sailing great. So you, you guys had that, you had the, the drop boards in, maybe it wasn't locked, but it, it should have kept out most of the water on that side. It just came in maybe a few cracks, uh, but it was that it was that hatch that got blown open. That yeah, that's what we're guessing. It didn't get blown open. It had to have been fried. There's no way it would have blown open. It was it was dogged down. Right. We still the... can't exactly how that occurred. These are really good hatches. They're good ocean going. Uh, what are they? Bomars. Jim's talking to the uh, marina manager right now. Yeah. You know. So, but. When it ripped that off, it ripped off the uh, lifeboat, which was our life raft, which was bolted down through the deck on a on a kind of a lugger track that we had made when we were in the Philippines. Right. And it pulled the bolts right out of the 
So it took like a drag and life boat and life raft and everything all at once. Wow. And Jim, did did he see the, the wave coming or was it like a surprise to him? Well, he could... I think when it was just right there. There was no, there was no uh, move that he could make. The yeah. first thing I saw was the boat turning upside down on top of it. And, and how did Jim hold on? On the starboard cockpit seat. Yeah. And when the, the boat picked up and was hit by the top of the wave break, and I kind of slid off the seat and just grabbed the steering pedestal and held on as hard as I could. And the wave rolled the boat over. I got hit in the face with something, part of the canvas work or something, the, the sprint, uh, framework for that, and uh, was underwater for a little bit, and then the boat righted. And I ended up breaking the steering pedestal off, but I was able to hold on. And I think what happened was, you know, we slid down the face of the wave, more or less upside down, and we had water. The starboard side, the low side, was scooping water. And I think that helped me stay in. If it had all been from one side, it might have been impossible to just hold on. So you held onto the pedestal, but the pedestal broke off. Yeah. So it, it slowed you down, but it was detached by the end of the wave. There's, the pedestal was broken off the base, but it has a continuous loop of chain that goes to a jack shaft in the engine room that drive up and it pulls the cable. So it didn't go away. It was still attached by that chain. And we were still able to hold it up and steer the boat after she righted and the, the one big wave went by. Wow. Still, that must have really made it harder to steer after the wave, right? <laughs> a lot harder. Yeah. And we knew it was only a matter of time before, you know, all the stuff that came loose in the cabin and the floorboards came up and everything when the water got in there. And it was only a matter of time before something was going to jam in the cables or the quadrant or something anyway. But it was harder to steer, but we were able to keep it squared off to the waves. So, and you, you know, you, you hear about that and you, you don't think, oh, well, the wheel broke off and you have to bail out water at the same time. Yeah, I mean, he spent most of that six hours between when, the, when this happened and by the time the Coasties came out in their helicopter, he was down below most of the time laying in water that was less than 60 degrees, sloshing about being hit by boards and God knows what trying to clear the uh, baskets on all the pumps because what came with all of this was sludge of some kind and uh, he says it was the books soggy paper bags and other paper products paper and products <sighs> whatever got into the sludge it was pretty went right through the strainers it went into the strainers or through the strainers and then clogged the pump so he had to continuously take apart the strainers and unclog it but it would only last for about a minute or if even that long did manage to lower the water level about four inches or so. It was about four inches above the cabin sole and got it down to where the floorboards were. And I couldn't leave the wheel at that point, you know, because we had to keep the stern into the wave. So I was at the wheel almost almost about five and a half hours, I guess, to, you know, just solid. I think I had one little break when he told me to go down and change my clothes and see if I could find anything that was still dry. Was the wind vane working at all, or was it torn off? What? Was the wind vane working at all, or was it torn off? or the After the rollover, the wind blade snapped off. Yeah. But up until that point, it was steering the boat great. Yeah. And, but we were taking turns sitting on the wheel, making sure that it was going to keep us squared off and not broach the yeah. boat. So. We always have one person out in the cockpit standing yeah. watch. We never go down below. And we've never had 
weather. I mean, Jim's been in bad weather a lot because he was a tugboater up in the Gulf of Alaska in the Bering Sea and all that. So he's had major weather issues, you know, over the years. He knows a lot about hypothermia. He's had to evacuate people on his tugs who have suffered hypothermia. So he knew something about all of this. You know, he, he, he just, he, we never, ever, never stood watch. We were always, one of us was always on, up there in the cockpit. And were the, was the hand pump working or not really? Uh, yeah, but it was the same problem. You, it would get clogged. You pump and it would clog up. The, the big, we have four electric pumps and uh, I turned all four of them on. The, the wind generator was actually still working and just screaming. We pegged the ammeter out at 25 amps and the battery voltage was 13.3. So I had wow. plenty of juice, so I turned all four electric pumps on. But the, you know, after maybe 20 minutes, they started to plug up. So I turned them all off, and the one big one is a 4,000 gallon per hour submersible that's bolted to the engine room floor. But the pump snaps into the strainer, so you can just unsnap it and pull the pump off of the strainer, so it makes it easy to clear out. And I was doing that, and I put it back together, turned it on, and would pump water pretty good for about maybe two minutes or so, and then clog up it. So I'd shut it off, unsnap it, clean it out, and kept doing that. You know, that's how we got the water down a little bit. But uh, after about two hours into it, Joy thought we should set off the EPIRB because she's thinking our kids don't even know where we are. We might as well at least, you know, they'll at least know where we went down or something like that. Yeah, bye. I was standing at the wheel and I just kept looking forward and there was no dinghy and no life raft. If anything else happened, we were toast. You know, yeah. There was nothing to jump yeah. into. Exactly. And, yeah. uh, you know, we, we weren't 100% sure that we weren't taking on water, but Jim was probably 90% sure that we weren't taking on any more water. But, you know, just the thoughts while you're standing there and I kept yeah. thinking, my children, you know, I would hate to leave them with the idea that they never knew whatever happened to their parents, you know, uh, just a you know, just a day or two before they were supposed to come in after go, go, going around the world for 17 years, and set almost 70,000 miles, and you know, we, they just lose us, and within a day of our coming back in, it was just it, that, that thought just kept running through my head, and and that's when he looked up and he said, I just can't keep this the strainers uh, clean, the pumps going, and I just said, well. Should we set off the EPIRB? And that's when we did. So we did set off the EPIRB, but, but we it just kept working, you know, trying to get the water out, trying to get things. And frankly, I wasn't really even expecting a rescue. I just wanted somebody to know where we were. Right. You know, I, I didn't expect it. It was four hours later when I heard the Ghosties yeah, um, uh, call. We had the one radio, this old radio. I mean, this radio is, what, 25 years old or something? It was, it was still working. It's in the aft cabin. We could reach it from the uh, from the steering. Is that uh, the HF or the SSB? Is that what kind of radio was working? No, this is VHF in the back. VHF. All our other comms were gone. Uh, the VHF in the uh, main uh, navigation area, our was, SSB was gone. Everything was gone, so yeah. we couldn't call anybody or let anybody know. Although people did know where we were, because Jim checked into the PAC CNET every evening, and I even asked him. I said, if we just disappear, don't call them tonight, will they be worried about us or will they just think, oh, they just forgot? I mean, we checked in religiously every single night 
And I said, well, they think that maybe uh, we just forgot to call in on the last day or that we got in or something we, and we not even... Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you were so close to land, you could have just went into port and not called. Yeah, they might have just assumed that and not even thought, well, there's a problem here. He also contacted on SSB on Windling every day almost to two of his friends and he always let them know our latitude and what the weather was and uh, you know approximate date of arrival that sort of thing where we were they knew and fortunately those were the two guys that were on our EPER contact list and both of them confirmed where we were to the Coast Guard and that we had reported that there was that we were in some bad weather. Do, do you guys use a uh, satellite in addition to SSB or just SSB? major anything like that no okay i mean we used to have one but it's it's way out of date now we bought it back in the early 2000s we only registered it once in a while when we were making a big crust but we decided not to do it this time well yeah. it, it's older than the battery right the last yeah, that's, yeah. Right. that's right the battery was kind of dead and it just wasn't worth to put money in it we thought so and in you know, it was in the chart table and it got drenched anyway, so... When you started getting the gribs and the bad weather, did you did you talk to anybody else on the cruiser's net, the SSB net, about the weather situation, get their take on it? No, I, I checked into the Pacific Seafarers net around 1800 part-time, and, uh, you know, you give them a weather report and whatnot. At that time, I reported 20, about 25 knots northwest, but after the sun went down, uh, it started getting windier, and the grip file showed a more compressed band of uh, isobars right. ahead of us. The maximum wind shown was 26 knots. Of course, that's an average of the highest third, so, you know, we were expecting gusts into the 30s. But after the sun went down and the wind started getting stronger, it started getting stronger and stronger and higher than 30, and the sea became confused. The boat was jerking around and very nervous, and every now and then it would fall into a hole. And then, you know, it kept falling off. We were headed for Cape Flattery, which was more or less northeast, a northeast course. But we kept falling off. And finally, by about midnight, we were running dead downwind under bare poles. And the boat was doing fine. It's a great boat. And it's tracking good. The wind vane was actually steering and keeping us on course. And as we mentioned earlier, one of us was sat on the wheel the whole time just to make sure that the wind vane didn't get carried away. And then about, I guess, 3.15, 3.20, we got one wave that came from a different direction and bigger. There have been a lot of people on the Internet who haven't grasped that concept yet. We've been getting a lot of criticism for it. You should have been towing a drove or you should have had sail up or blah, blah. But we were running down one under bare poles. 4.6 knots and we weren't bowing with The boat was doing just fine. It was we're a great... taking seas. And we know our boat better than anybody else. So. <laughs> it was a good speed for steerage. I didn't want to slow down anymore because I didn't want to get pooped or have any boarding seas. And we, you know, if we had gone faster and needed to slow down, I could stream warps or whatever to slow down, but I didn't feel we needed it. We were tracking okay, steering good, and then we got one wave out of nowhere. And it wasn't in with the existing wave train, it came perpendicular to, uh, to the rest of the waves. And that one wave is what did it in. After it went by, we went back to going downwind under bare poles and doing fine. You did bare poles you, uh, because the wind speed was so high. How high do you think the winds were? It was over 40 times. So it was kind of in the, in the low storm range. It's pretty, pretty, pretty brisk. Pretty consistent in the high 30s and gusting into the 40s. And we've had situations like that many times before. 
Just oh. I had never been in seas like that before. That that was the highest seas I've ever well, seen. Well, the seas were steep and short, and the and the crests were breaking. But we weren't we weren't being pooped. We weren't taking any boarding seas. We were just tracking along downwind. And my feeling was that by daybreak things were going to ease up a little bit. And that was only you know maybe two and a half a hours, hours away. away. But uh, and I think that's you know what did ultimately happen. Yeah. But we got hit by that one wave, and the boat, we didn't expect the boat to survive, because as I was going up in the helicopter basket, I was watching the boat, and a wave broke over it. Because nobody was steering it anymore into the, you know, keeping the stern into and the waves. And I, I so. thought, you know, it's it's not going to, you Be can't long. do that too many times without sinking the boat. Yeah. But... The boat survived, and yeah. five weeks later, the Coast Guard towed it into Fort Bragg. We uh, so, actually thought we were kind of grieving over the boat, you know, and of we course. didn't really talk about it much for the first three, three and a half weeks or so. And then all of a sudden, Jim and I started talking about, well, what if we recover the boat? So we thought, well, we'll, we'll, we'll go down the coast of Oregon and we'll start harbor hopping, you know, from one harbor to the other and start talking to people to see if anybody's seen anything or... Maybe a fisherman grappled it and got it in and towed it in or something like that. We uh, just kept uh, thinking that maybe we should be a little more, you know, I mean, we just didn't have the money to go out and hire an airplane or something to go out and look for the boat. We certainly didn't have enough money to go out 180 miles in a tow vessel or a salvage vessel to try to get it back. That was just not going to happen. So we just, we, were, we felt very helpless, you know, and, and really sorrowful. I mean, we were both very sorrowful. Finally, you know, about three and a half weeks or so later, we started talking about recovery. Maybe it'll, maybe we'll find it. Something will happen. Maybe by now we were tracking, Jim was tracking the weather the whole time. And he was, he was thinking that it would go south and southeast. And uh, sure enough, it did. It was the Barracuda, I think it was the other. Okay, the Barracuda, the Coast Guard vessel Barracuda, found it 44 miles off the coast and uh, brought it in. A couple more days, she might have, we might have lost her on the rocks. How did, how did they find it? How did they come across it? They were just out on a routine patrol and stumbled across it. Yeah, they weren't looking for it, but they knew. They all knew about it. They all knew about what had happened. And uh, but no, they weren't looking for it. They just saw it and realized exactly. I think almost immediately what it was. Oh, they recognized Calera and they recognized the vessel. They didn't. They didn't think it was uh, just like a boat with no sails up or anything. Yeah. Well, the main was. Uh, had fallen out of the stack pack and it was hanging down and I thought well that's shredded okay so it it looked like an abandoned vessel just when they saw it yeah yeah Yeah. but they would have known what it was anyway um about a week before this the coast guard called us for information on their life raft they found a life raft with drift okay um, up off of uh, coos bay and so they were trying to identify the life raft and asking us questions about it and I guess they determined that it was not our life raft, it was somebody else's life raft. Is the seafloor, is it like really shallow as you get closer to Washington? Is that maybe part of the steepness of the seas? I actually can't answer that. Jim just, okay. just left on right. going to talk to the manager here. We're getting, we're yeah. pulling the engine today. The engine did seize, unfortunately. Oh no. So getting pulled a little later and we're going to have to rebuild that before we could go anywhere. Pulled the EPIRB. You weren't sure if you were going to abandon ship or not, but you wanted people to know that you were there. Could you tell me about the decision making when you decided it was time to abandon ship? What uh, what kind of caused that? The Coast Guard had contacted us about 20 minutes, but they were 20 minutes away in the mm-hmm. helicopter. They were out for the farthest, they came out 180 miles. 
So they were at the end of the range, really, for what they could do. There was an airplane above them, a C something, I'm sorry, I don't know what it was, um, I have to look it up, but they wouldn't have been any help except maybe to have spotted us. And so that they called me about 20 minutes before they arrived and started talking and they asked, do you want to get off the boat? And I said, no, you know, we want to try to dewater the boat, we need a better pump, you know, our pumps are all clogging up. And like I said, I mean, originally I hadn't even thought that that I would ever hear from them, to be, to be honest. I just didn't know that this would actually happen. So I was kind of surprised when they called and happy to hear somebody so I could at least report our position and say, can you please contact our children and tell them we love them, you know, and tell them where, they're, where the bank accounts are, you know, so they right. get their little inheritance. And at that point, no, we weren't. And then when they came and landed, they landed on the starboard side. And so I couldn't see the swimmer going in. They told us they'd send a swimmer over. And so Jim went to the aft then lowered the ladder and set out warps so that uh, a rope so that the swimmer could grab something but he came along and just grabbed really right on the uh, Aries wind vane and I mean when you think about that <laughs> he's in 30 30 uh, 30 foot waves swimming over to our boat and we're doing 4.6 knots at that time and I said I, I told him I said if you miss the boat I can't come back and get you well they just know all this already and they, he, Jim said that guy just swam right over and grabbed the uh, wind vane and hauled himself up the ladder. So they were back in the aft, on the aft cabin talking, and I didn't even know that. I thought the swimmer was still out there somewhere, maybe he had missed the boat or something. Then all of a sudden, the coastie came to the side here and said, you're going to get off the boat. And I said, no, we're not. I said, we're, we just need a pump. And then Jim came behind him and said, no, Joy, we're getting off the boat. And so that had been a decision made between the two of them. And I think the Coastie recognized the signs of hypothermia and also that Jim had a gash and he looked pretty bad. He had blood over, down half his face and all down the front of his shirt. And it was a pretty good uh, wound over the, over the head, you know, so head wounds bleed, of course, but he had a pretty good gash on his head. You know, after six hours, almost six hours of laying in that cold water, how do you think anymore? You know, do you think that maybe this is better to get off and save our lives in case... Because once the Coasties left, then we were left to our own devices again, you know, with no comms, no life raft, no dinghy, nothing. They made that decision together. He's the captain, he's the boss um, on this boat as far as I'm concerned, and uh, he made that decision, and that's what we did. Very fast, I wasn't expecting it, I wasn't prepared, you know, so it was, uh, uh, he only gave me a minute, uh, a minute, you know, he said, go down and get your things and let's go. And I went, <laughs> I just, I just at that point, I couldn't think straight anymore. And uh, I was all over the boat trying to get stuff, but it, it was really hard to climb over things. Uh, you know, when we turned upside down, all the barriers that we had up to hold things in, all the locks on all the doors. I mean, the doors were smashed in. You know, there was stuff going around, knocking your feet, knocking your ankles. And, you know, it was really hard to get through all of that stuff. So we just, we just didn't get stuff. We actually dove in with the girls on our back. And that was, that was pretty much it. I didn't have any ID, nothing. You know, we had to get that all kind of... And that's pretty interesting to do when you have no ID to show that you have who you are to try to get ID. <laughs> so <laughs> it was an interesting procedure. But I bet you guys were pretty cold by that point, both of you. Especially yeah, Jim, they, since he was in the water. Yeah, they treated us uh, as best they could on the on the cop, chop, chopper for a little bit of hypothermia. And when Jim, when we got to the emergency room at the hospital there, they, they Jim actually had a drip, a couple bags of drip to warm him up. Well, I, I, I think you made the right decision. I, your lives are much more important 
than anything else. And and I guess you know I think the thing that people don't realize is that the Coast Guard is under such a time pressure because of fuel, right? And so part of the reason you have they only have so much fuel on the helicopter and they have to turn around and then if they come back they have to they have to get another helicopter. Right around at that point, you know, once they got back, but how long would that take to get, you know? So it was a decision made in in a critical moment by a knowledgeable, experienced captain, you know, who knew the sea, who knew what the seas could do. And even though a lot of people have kind of criticized us on the internet these days, because I guess the story just went everywhere about for banding in the boat, and that happens, they just don't understand what, what's going on, really. I mean, people don't, I think a lot of people don't think of hypothermia enough when they think about people drowning, that a lot of the drowning is, is actually people getting hypothermic and then they drown, right? That can happen very quick. And if you don't have anybody to provide medical care, all kinds of bad things can happen. Yeah. So you guys are now in Fort Bragg, the Coast Guard, California, and the Coast Guard towed Calarin in. You guys are currently working on the boat. You're replacing the engine. What are some other big things that are wrong with the boat that they found? Not crucial to moving. The stove is frozen and knocked off the gimbals and broken. The refrigeration, we haven't even tried that. We'll probably have to get a new... All the electronics are gone, all our computers, everything, you know. I mean, it was just like you took the boat... I mean, just take anything you own and turn it up. Even though you have everything tied in, have a violent car hit it or something like that. Turn it upside down and shake it real good or whatever. It's Everything was, was gone. I mean, we, we properly stow our boat and stow our things. But this is something I you, you would have to experience to even understand what happened here. It's just amazing. It was a shock. I mean, I, I was in absolute shock when I climbed out. When I was finally able to climb out of the bed, it took me 20 minutes to get out of the aft cabin because I had to move scuba tanks that came out of holders, the kind they have on dive boats you have in the aft cabin. The ladder had come up, jumped out, and bashed in some lockers, and I, so I had to move stuff, and then I went into the pass-through. The engine room doors are great big, heavy doors, and they had been blown off by the waves, I guess, by the <clears throat> by the force of the wave, and they were blocking my way to get out, so it took me quite a, quite a while to get out of there. So it was, the damage was, it's very extensive. We're going to be rebuilding, but exteriorly, not too bad, uh, surprisingly. We have, you know, some of the, the bow railing is a little bad, the stern railing is broken, we'll have to have that welded. Of course, all our enclosure is, of course, gone. We have to replace the mainsail. Batteries are, are dead now, so we'll have to replace that, but that's stuff you would do along the line anyway, a lot of that, so not really a thing. As far as getting the engine going, Port Bragg is a fishing port, and the dock we're in actually belongs to a fisherman. He's been kind enough to let us stay here because he knows we can't move. And so when he comes in and out, he'll go. To, he'll be the one who will go from slip to slip. It's very nice of him to offer to do that for us. Once we get the engine going, we'll be able to head down maybe to the Bay Area possibly and be able to get more work. And the steering pedestal, of course, the steering has to be you know, functional, and that's off now and being fixed, so. So maybe you're not in the ideal spot to get work done right now. Well, it's a huge fishing port, and so there's a lot of mechanics and things, but okay. um, it's ideal for maybe just the first bit, and then the rest of the stuff we'll have to do down in San Francisco. Looking in retrospect, did you, did you guys, after you got uh, out of the hospital, uh, did you guys look at kind of the weather system that hits you? What, what 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 was the deal with that weather system? I think Jim is the one better to talk to about that. 
the Gulf, you know, this came down from the Gulf, I think, this particular line that just kind of sliced through. We've actually had friends who back in 1991 got caught in a similar situation and they lost their steering and got towed into Eureka. <laughs> so it's nasty out there at times. It comes up quite quickly. And I don't think that it's always very predictable out there in that part of the world. And the Washington, Oregon coast has, uh, is no notorious really for, for doing this to people. So it's you think it was just like a squash zone or a gale that came down from the Gulf of Alaska? It could be. It just I just don't know. I can't really answer okay. that. Sorry. That was Joy and Jim Carey of the sailing vessel Calaire and fixing up their boat that sailed itself to California. And we wish them well on their further travels under sail. In the patron-only bonus episode on patreon.com, you can hear about their round-the-world voyage. And Joy talks about their plans to move the boat to the San Francisco area for the winter before making it the final leg of their round-the-world trip to Bellingham, Washington, their home port. At patreon.com slash slowboatsailing, $1 will get you my book, How to Sail Around the World part-time, and over 40 bonus episodes, including the bonus episode with the crew of Sailing Vessel Calarin. And there are great rewards for higher pledges. The $1 pledge level is a limited time offer. Next up, we're going to hear from Sailing Banjo, and you should check out their YouTube channel and also their blog at sailingbanjo.com. Links are in the show notes. First, let's hear a word from our sponsor, Mantis Anchors. Mantis Anchors founder Greg Cutson tells why they created a modular design that can be easily stowed away for their revolutionary anchor. Well, you literally have some time, just a few seconds, to deploy something. And that something you deploy better work. And sometimes it better work at short scope. And when we want to make them anchor modular. It's not just because we want you to have a spare for a hurricane, you know, be able to put away a monster. But we want you to be able to have a spare for an emergency, which, meaning a spare anchor needs to have the same setting performance as your primary. That was kind of the, the thought. So we wanted to have, we didn't, we didn't want to change the design, we wanted to have the main anchor as something that is modular, so you can use it for a variety of applications. You can get Mantis anchors and their other innovative sailing gear at mantismarine.com or other fine retailers. Here is the crew of Sailing Banjo, Shannon and Sean Yale, in New Bern, North Carolina, after Hurricane Florence. Hi. This is Sean and Shannon from Banjo. How are you? I saw you did a post that you're anchoring somewhere. Your boat's doing good? Yeah. The, the marina was given a mandatory evacuation order. We you know, looked for a place, and a friend of ours found a small you know, kind of hurricane hole for us to put the boat, we took her out there and dropped her anchor, and uh, we actually put out two anchors, buttoned her all up, secured her down, and kind of went back to the marina to help with the other boats. Um, fortunately, our boat was uh, was spared, and she survived the storm, and there were quite a few at the marina that didn't. And you were at the Bridgepoint Marina in New Bern for the storm. Hi, this is Shannon. Yes, that's correct. We're at Bridgepoint. Yeah, right before the storm, we anchored out. Uh, right before the storm came in. Most of the marina has some pretty extensive damage. There were a few boats that were left in the marina 
during the storm. Ours was not one of those. We we took ours and anchored her out. So you dinghied ashore to Bridge Point, and then you walked around there, and that was the the video that I saw on on Facebook and on your YouTube channel that you posted yesterday. You know, volunteered to to help the uh, the dockmaster and the other marina staff to kind of secure boats before the storms, the ones that were left in the marina. We volunteered to you know go out there, you know, help adjust lines and add fenders and you know whatever we could do to to prevent damage. And when the storm hit, nobody was out on the actual docks. Uh, I think uh, right when the uh, the flooding and the storm surge started getting really bad was about five o'clock. I want to say it was like the 15th or the 14th. Uh, I don't remember the dates right now. Sorry. We we went out there, volunteered, helped secure the, the boats uh, for our community. And then, you know, once the storm passed, uh, we were asked by the, the marina to go out and, you know, kind of uh, get some footage to show people what happened. Uh, that way people wouldn't be coming down to the docks trying to get to their boats and things like that due to the, you know, the dangerous nature of the the state of the docks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I saw those uh, warnings. Are they starting to let some of the boat owners in today? It's uh, Tuesday. Um, I haven't heard anything. I do know that they're, the, the marina staff has been um, in contact with some of the owners, and they're putting together a plan as far as uh, uh, getting the boats out of that area. That way they can you know, begin assessing all the damage and and figuring out about repairs and things like that, if, if that is something that they're going to be able to do or not right now. We've been uh, we've been at Bridgepoint for about a year. We spent three months, a little over a year actually, we spent three months uh, in the boat yard doing some work on the boat. You know, for Bridgepoint is our home marina. Uh, but you're probably not going to go back anytime soon because of the, the damage to the docks and the boats in the water? Yes, it, it's unknown at this point. We would like to go back there, you know, whenever they get it fixed, get it back up operational. It's just kind of a unknown as to when that will be. What happened to the docks that they were hardest hit? What what caused most of the damage? Best guess would have, would be storm surge. We did we did have some uh, significant wind, but they it seems that the surge, uh, you know, coupled with the winds, just just was too much. I believe another one of the the boaters uh, that did stay at the hotel during the storm, he got some you know, footage uh, from his hotel window. He was one of the guys that was also volunteering to help with the docks. You know, the surge was just massive. I think they, the official count from what we've heard was uh, we had 11 feet of storm surge, coupled that with the winds, and it, you know, it was just too much strain for the, the docks to take. So did, did some of the docks go off their pilings or did they stay on it was just they kind of broke up most of the docks that were on the piling for the finger piers those some of those survived there are three main docks there at bridge point the the one they call sea dock which is closest to the noose river uh, acts as a wave attenuator so anytime there's a threat of a big storm they evacuate that dock and in the event of a, a large storm you know the, the marina reserves the right to evacuate the entire marine our sea dock did a really good job for a while of protecting, you know, kind of the inner marina area. But like I said, with the surge and the winds and the, the destruction that happened with Sea Dock breaking up, uh, it kind of left the other left the other docks more exposed. And when we walked out there, got the footage after the storm. You know, you could see how uh, screws had been completely pulled. 
captured. And I think it was just an overwhelming storm for for that area. When I look at the damage, I, I noticed you walked out on A dock and B dock in your videos. When I look at C dock, it seemed like that kind of broke up and there's not really access to it at the moment. Is that correct? Yeah, from what we can see, there wasn't enough to safely go out onto Sea Dock at all. Boats got blown. You know, we've we've seen boats, you know, a mile and a half, two miles away. So I mean boats just uh, once they became unsecured they just became to the power of the weather. There were several boats that sunk in their slips in B dock, is that right? It looked that way, yeah. So tell me about your thought process for anchoring out versus staying in, in the marina. What was what drove you to do that instead of tying up at, at uh, Bridgepoint? In this area, there are only a few places to actually haul the boat out. Those you know filled up extremely fast with everyone trying to, to get out of the water. Given the evacuation order, you know we started looking for a safe place. You know, it seemed uh, we've, we've got fairly good ground tackle on Banjo. We, we found a place that was, you know, fairly well sheltered from the winds and the waves. It just seemed like kind of an only option sort of thing, given the fact that we weren't going to be able to haul the boat. So you, you didn't think tying up at the marina for the storm was a good idea? Well, it wasn't. For us, it wasn't an option. I mean, you know, we were... We were there, and, and it was uh, the marina is a very safe, very well built marina. But given the fact that uh, you know the staff had asked everyone to evacuate, and, you know that that wasn't an option. Oh, you were you were a boat that we were on a dock. But there were some boats at a dock that did not evacuate, right? Most everyone on all of the docks was on a waiting list to try to get hauled out. Some people thought about like moving down the ICW. So I saw one cruiser who was in Myrtle Beach and he went to South Georgia. Was that something that you thought was an option or you just didn't have time? Um, I assumed that you were working during the week and couldn't get that much time off. What, what was the thought process for that? Florence had a rather erratic track, and the predictions were all over the place. So, you know, heading south wouldn't have been an option just because the reports that we saw and all the predictions went everywhere from, you know, Cape Lookout, uh, Hatteras, all the way down to Savannah, Georgia. You know, basically, you know, we looked at the various tracks, and we didn't know a definitive track even until, uh, I'd say, about 24 hours prior to the storm. So running, you know, running south uh, or even running north for that point, uh, we actually saw a few predictions that said that, the you know, the hurricane could turn north. We figured with New Bern being inland, that would give us some protection. We figured that getting closer to it would, would probably not have been. And why don't you tell me about your boat? Uh, what kind of boat do you have? We have a 44-foot CSY. Her name's Banjo. She is a uh, 38,000-pound displacement. We love her. Were you guys on the boat for the storm? Did you Do you have a house in the New Bern area? What was the situation like for that during the no, storm? We had one of our friends who's also a, a full-time cruiser uh, had an apartment in town offered to let us uh, refugee with him for the storm. You anchored successfully for the storm. I noticed you have a, a Mantis anchor on your boat. I was looking at your YouTube channel. Mantis Anchors is a sponsor of this YouTube channel. What special did you do to anchor for the storm? Well, last year after we uh, purchased Banjo, we did a 
significant upgrade to the ground tackle that was aboard. We went with an 85-pound Mantis, and we upgraded all of our chain to 3 eighths. We put roughly 250 feet of chain and another 100 feet of three-strand, three-quarter-inch nylon road for the storm. Given, you know, given that there were so many variables, we also put out a uh, Bruce anchor that was on 5 sixteenths chain, probably, I think, what did I say, 150 feet. We did 150 feet on the Mantis and then another 100 feet on the Bruce. And we you know, set them up sort of on a uh, like a Bahama-type rig where uh, you know we came off at an angle. We figured anything that we could do to, 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 to get something to hold the area where we were has a, a good sandy bottom so that mantis set right in and then we set the bruce off at an angle and based on the the, the winds that were predicted you know she held that the mantis just was amazing it just it, it grabbed and it, it it's still there i mean it's still wedged in we're actually going to go out to the boat today and reduce the bruce and we're going to you know, kind of shorten scope when we anchored we were at 12 feet of water which they were calling for a uh, 9 to 13 foot storm surge so we figured with that uh, on a 10 to 1 scope we estimated roughly 170 feet of, of scope to account for the storm surge so that would actually drop us a little lower than the the 10 to 1 by the time this the surge was at its peak but for the the waters that we were in you know kind of hoped for the best expected the worst kind of thing did you have insurance for this storm or we are insured yes okay and do you guys live aboard the boat is that right that you were in somebody else's apartment you but you're full-time live aboards um, we're not live aboards we we're full-time cruisers uh so we use the boat a lot but we're not on we're not on the boat all year round a good portion of, of the year we are. We also have homes back in uh, Winston-Salem and Forsyth County areas. Do you have big plans for future travels? We do. We were in the process of prepping to go to the Bahamas this year. I'm looking forward to you know, getting down the ICW zone. Uh, doing, you know, given that this is our first year owning the boat, or actually this will be our second year owning the boat, our goal is to go to the Bahamas after hurricane season, you know, do some coastal cruising here along the East Coast, and you know, then we'll see where we go next. That was Shannon and Sean of Sailing Banjo, and you can follow them at sailingbanjo.com or the Sailing Banjo YouTube channel. I'm going to put their social media links in the description. Okay, if you like this podcast, I highly recommend to subscribe, and it also helps get the podcast found to write a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Well, I never know if a news story is going to knock my plans for the next monthly episode back, so I think Sailing Mischief, I had planned to put that out in October of 2017, but it went into our August 2018 episode because of a big news story about some Hawaiian sailors. It is my hope that we're going to have a reading from Paul Trammell's book next month and a reading of Sailing Kittawick on their take on the YouTube phenomenon for sailing vlogs.
on this podcast and on our YouTube channel, while we tell our story about our round-the-world voyage, the focus is on the stories of the most interesting sailors in the world, like Jim and Joy Carey, like Abolash Tommy, and like the crew of Sailing Banjo. So we focus on bringing you the, the news of interesting cruising sailors both in video and in our podcasts. While I strive to do a monthly podcast, when I'm not sailing, I try to do many more videos of the most interesting sailors in the world at YouTube slash Sailing. Until next time, have some fun on the water. I'm Linus Wilson. Hi, I'm Jana Wilson. Thank you for listening to the Slow Boat Sailing Podcast. Subscribe to our free newsletter at slowboatsailing.com.